0: Thanks for watching this video from Cherry Hills Church. During this series, we want to spend time with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to live the way of Jesus. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, good morning, church. My name's Luke. I get to lead our high school ministry here. And uh, as always, it's a privilege to get to open the scriptures together this Sunday morning. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and take that out. We're going to be in Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a seat near you. You can grab that to follow along. And if you don't have one at home or you want to give it away to a friend, that is yours to keep and take and do with what you will. We'd love for you to have a copy of of God's word with you. Uh, We're going to continue this morning in a, a series we've been in for several weeks now through the gospel of Mark. And the Gospel of Mark, we've said, is probably the most action-oriented. It's the shortest, and it's the earliest of the early witnesses' testimonies to the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. But we've been saying this each week, that we're not just studying the Gospel of Mark because we want to learn some interesting historical information about someone who lived 2,000 years ago and keep that in the past. No, to the the contrary, we've said this each week, and if you're following in our notes, we are spending time with Jesus so we can learn to live the way of Jesus. Practitioners, right? That's what we want to be. Jesus called us to not just be hearers, but be doers of the word. So we're having an encounter through the word, through the spirit with Jesus to become like him and do the things he did. That's how we're in the gospel of Mark together. Now, before we dive into Mark chapter three, indulge me for a moment here in a practice of, of recollection. Think back to... Uh, your childhood or maybe your adolescence. And I just wonder, could you, could you picture yourself, maybe it's uh, on a baseball dime in a sandlot somewhere in the neighborhood park. Maybe it's on a, a playground. Maybe it's in an auditorium at the school or in a basketball gym. And you're waiting to get picked for the team. Can you imagine this moment? I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it was you're trying to make the high school varsity basketball team. Maybe you were hoping to get cast in the school musical or play. Maybe you just wanted to get thrown onto the neighborhood kickball team, whatever it might be. Most of us know the experience of longing to be a part of something. The team, the group, the circle, to be appointed and called into something and be given something meaningful to do and to be a part of it with other people. For me, I think back and I can picture myself standing outside the boys' locker room at the athletic facility. I'm standing in the hallway, and outside the door, I'm looking at this white sheet of paper taped to the wall with a list of names on it, and I am sweaty palm praying that my name is on that sheet of paper because it's the roster that's just been posted for the high school soccer team. And we've been doing tryouts and I've been training and practicing and drilling and working and running. And and I really hope, I mean, I'm not like gonna go pro or anything, I have that understanding, that awareness. But I'm 14 and this is my world. This is my ambition and my dream and my hope and all my insecurity and pride and vanity is wrapped up in this thing. And so I'm desperate to see my name on the team. So what I finally do, and I scroll down the names and I see, oh, Luke Martin. You can just imagine it, right? It's like I'm living in a Disney movie. The birds are singing, the sun is shining, all is right in the world. We know how bad, how desperately, we long to be a part of something, to belong, to be given meaningful work to do, to be a part of something that really matters in life and in the world. And so in a world where we spend so much of our lives and so much of our time trying to prove that we belong, I wanna proclaim to you the good news this morning that Jesus has called you to be with him and to share in his work. I wanna show you this in Mark chapter three. I'll start in verse seven as Mark sets the scene for what's going on at this time in Jesus' ministry. Mark three, verse seven begins this way. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. So what's going on here in this scene? Jesus has become somewhat of a public spectacle, a little bit of a cultural phenomenon, if you will, at the time. Some people marvel at him. Some people hate him. Some people follow him. Nobody seems to ignore him. He's continually growing in fame throughout this region. And so people are pressing in on him, crowding toward him. And I think in this scene, there's three groups that I want to draw our attention to who are surrounding Jesus. Three groups in this scene. The first is the disciples. And disciples in this instance is a general Turn. We'll meet the 12 in a second. But right now, disciples is a general term for followers of Jesus. It would have included uh, the five disciples that we've already seen call at this point in Mark's gospel. But it would have included people, young and old, men and women, anybody who had seen something in Jesus they wanted to discover, know more about, learn from. This was common practice in that day, right? You would have rabbis, teachers, and people would seek them out and try if they could to sit under their teaching, to consider their sayings and their wisdom and imitate their life. And so Jesus has a crowd around him of, of followers, of disciples who are trying to do this very thing. People who have seen, they may not fully understanding, but they've seen something in Jesus and they know it's beautiful, it's good, it's true, it's surprising, it's mysterious. And so they've gravitated toward him to sit under this teacher from Nazareth. That's the first group is The disciples. A second group is the crowd. Now the crowd is a host of people. We don't know how big, could have been probably in the hundreds, but it's this mass mob of sorts that's come from all directions. You'll see the mark lists several different places. This is north and south and west, the Sea of Galilee. They've come from all these surrounding regions all over the map. They're pouring in to see and get a glimpse of Jesus and maybe even to touch him if they can. Now, the crowd has different reasons for seeking out Jesus. Some people in the crowd, Mark tells us, they're there for healing. They know, they've heard that Jesus is a healer. And they believe that if they can just touch him, get proximity, get presence, that somehow they'll be made well from whatever is afflicting them. There's other people in the crowd, I would imagine, who are are merely curious. Maybe they have some spiritual questions or longings, And they've heard rumors and whispers about who Jesus is and the things that he can do. And they're just, they're investigating, they're seekers. We know from other accounts, I think of somebody like Zacchaeus. People always looking out for Jesus, trying to figure out what's this guy all about? Can he meet my needs? Is he who he says he is or who people say that he is? There's a group of seekers within this crowd as well. And also I think there's some people in the crowd probably who have some malicious intent. There's plenty of accounts like this in the Gospels as well. People who spend time around Jesus with a little bit of guile, hoping to trick or trap or test Jesus, hoping to catch him in the wrong, doing something he's not supposed to be doing, finding fault with him. They're there because they they do not believe, they cannot, they will not believe, and they feel threatened by who he is and the things that he's said to be doing. This is the crowd. there's a third group that's in this scene that Mark tells us, and this is the demons. The demons are the third group. Mark calls them impure spirits. These are spiritual beings and enemies of God. And this fascinates me. They nonetheless know exactly who Jesus is. You'll not find a, a higher statement about who Jesus is in the gospel of Mark than this. You are the son of God. It's said a few times by a few different people. In this instance, the demons are the ones who proclaim it. They know exactly who Jesus is. And in every instance throughout the gospels where you see demons interacting with Jesus and they're actually speaking, right? They're having some sort of interaction conversation. They always know who Jesus is and they're always afraid of him. They're always threatened by Jesus and the kingdom of God that he is proclaiming. Why? Because they know that it infringes on the kingdom and the dominion that they hold on the earth. And so they know who Jesus is, but they are threatened by his very identity and presence. These are the three groups of people. Now, I think that when Mark sets this scene, this is a sort of summary statement. It's like a transitional moment in his narrative where he's giving us a high-level view of the sorts of things that are going on in the ministry of Jesus. So this would be like, like connective tissue between the different stories and specific narratives that Mark has to tell us about what Jesus is doing. I think if Mark were uh, a filmmaker and not an author, this would be something like a montage, a la Karate Kid or Rocky or something like this, right? This is a moment where we're getting a, a zoomed out vision of what Jesus is up to in the world rather than a specific event of something that he is doing. And so what he shows us is that, like we saw in last week's passage, talking about the Sabbath, right? There are a growing number of enemies of Jesus. There are people out there who are now looking to kill Jesus, but there's also a growing number of people who support him, who are looking to him for hope and healing. And so Jesus is like moving up the ranks, so to speak, in public attention, His celebrity status is increasing over time. He's a controversial figure, both with those who dislike him and both those who are for him. But this notoriety and this growing acclaim is gonna begin to pose a problem. It's gonna become problematic for the strategy of Jesus in his ministry, for his philosophy, his approach to how he wants to do his father's will in the world. This growing notoriety and supporters is gonna become problematic. I want us to notice something really key here. First, Jesus has compassion on the crowds. That's why he he welcomes them and he heals them and he meets them where they're at. But his intent is not just to gather a crowd and do his thing. That's not what he's about. You'll notice he, he gets into a boat. He's like, I need a little bit of space, right? And you'll notice that Mark tells us what? Verse seven, Jesus withdrew. So there are moments of engagement, but Jesus is not just saying like, Bring on the fame. Shout it from the rooftops. Tell everybody who I am. You can see that even he tells the demons, the ones who know exactly who he is, and maybe they're not the people he wants bearing witness, but he tells them strictly, don't say who I am, right? He's not seeking to gather acclaim and notoriety and buzz about who he is and the kinds of things that he is doing. On numerous occasions, Jesus tells people, both uh, disciples and even demons, to be silent about who he is. This is a recurring motif, a theme in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Some scholars in the past have called this the messianic secret. But really, it's no secret at all. In fact, it's only surprising that Jesus would do this and act this way and forbid this kind of notoriety if we presuppose that Jesus wanted to get famous, if you presuppose that Jesus ought to want everybody to know who he is and what he's up to and, and have the whole Israel just, just buzzing with the things that this Messiah figure is doing, then, then maybe it's, it's strange. But if we see that Jesus has a totally different vision for how he wants to work in the world, as we'll see in just a moment, then it makes sense that he's not trying to draw crowds to himself. So let's ask the question, why isn't Jesus interested in the notoriety and the popularity of the crowds? Have you ever thought about this before? Why is he not interested in the notoriety of the crowds? Here's my theory. Jesus knows the danger of crowds, the fickleness of crowds. Crowds are a danger to themselves and to the one who draws the crowd. Jesus is keenly aware of this. The crowd will shout on one day, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And on the next day, it's crucify him, we have no king but Caesar. This is the crowd. Jesus knows the hearts of people. He knows the hearts of the crowd. The crowd is a group of spiritual consumers. They want Jesus to do things for them. You know, heal my auntie, my grandma, help me pay off my debts, find the love of my life, get into the college I want to go to, help the I win, whatever, Right? We want things from God. We want things from Jesus. But the crowd has no fidelity, no allegiance to God for God's sake. And so the dangerous thing about being part of a spiritual crowd is that we can deceive ourselves into thinking that because we were here and we did the things that the people around us were doing, that we belonged, that we were part of it. Jesus says, this is not the case. Matthew chapter 7 Jesus gives this warning. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, drive out demons? And in your name, perform many miracles? I mean, these are stellar Christians, right? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Here's the thing. Jesus is not a religious celebrity whose name we can invoke when it suits us. Jesus doesn't want fans. He wants followers. These are the people he's looking for to draw to himself and give an opportunity to share in his work. Not fans, but followers. Which are you? We all have spiritual needs we all have things we want God to do for us. That's okay. God meets us where we're at, right? He heals those who come to Him. But He wants so much more for you. And He will not be content to allow us to show up and to go through the motions and play Christian. He wants something deeper for us and from us. Jesus has an altogether different mission strategy than the gather a crowd, right? It's not built around uh, gathering popularity. His mission strategy is built around distributing power. And so verse 13, Mark picks up the story and switches scenes here. In verse 13, he says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons, the very things that Jesus is doing. These are the 12 that he appointed. There's Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now notice the contrast between this section and the previous one. We've moved from lakeside to a mountain, from a crowd of people busting at the seams, pressing it around him, to a small circle of close friends and appointed representatives. We've moved from a command not to say anything about who he is, to a command to preach and proclaim the kingdom of God, to tell people about the Messiah and what Jesus is doing and who he is. So we're meant to see a difference in these two moments. In this moment, what Jesus does is choose from among his disciples a set of 12 people. Now, Mark, in this instance, doesn't call them apostles, but elsewhere throughout the gospel accounts and once later in in Mark's gospel, that is what this group of 12 is known as, Jesus' apostles. They're called apostles because they are in Greek, apostoloi, sent ones, they are people who have been given a mission from the one who has sent them, their master. If you're following in your notes, an apostle is an authorized representative. An apostle is somebody who is sent out with a purpose to go and to represent the identity and the will and the work of the one who has sent them. They have a particular authority and responsibility to go and make manifest The words and the actions of the one who they represent. This is who the 12 are. And so in some ways, the 12 are set apart for a particular vocation that's not shared by all of Jesus' disciples and followers. They have a a unique kind of authority and responsibility that they are given by Jesus that sets them apart, that distinguishes them from the rest of Jesus' followers in this moment. But here is the really important thing to get, right? Jesus is not singling this group out because they're the only ones that he wants to be with him and to share in his work. These are not Jesus's only coworkers. Paul emphasizes this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 13. Paul writes, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Here's the thing. Jesus is appointing the 12 because he wants to empower, right? To distribute what he is doing to other people. And these people, their chief responsibility is to draw others into the mission of Jesus, to be with him, to learn from him, to do the things he did. So we we, we cannot let ourselves off the hook here and go, I'm not an apostle. What Jesus has given them to do is not given me to do, right? I'm just like, if you've ever had that, that thought, don't be so quick and so content to stick with the crowd. Jesus is giving us an opportunity to be with him, to belong and to take in something meaningful for our lives, to be a part of what he is doing in the world. The calling of the apostles mirrors the call of Christ on all our lives. And I want to draw just two two ways, I think, that we can see a mirror image of the calling of the apostles and the calling of every follower of Jesus, myself and you included. Two ways. And I'll summarize these in kind of two movements. Firstly, you notice that he appoints 12. Why? That they might be with him. That's the first reason, that they might be with him. This is the first movement. To be with Jesus is the inward movement, the movement of formation. This is the first movement movement and the calling of Jesus on our lives to be with him. It's the interior journey. It's learning, discovering, exploring who God is and who we are as we spend time with Jesus, learning from him. And as we do that, we are changed by that encounter. When you go to be with Jesus, to learn from him, to sit under his authoritative teaching... You cannot leave unchanged by that. His words don't return void to him. His words accomplish what they say and what they're intended to do. So we're called, we're given this opportunity, this remarkable privilege to do our life with Jesus. Through his spirit, he is present to us, with us, in us. And we get to be radically reformed by the person and the way and the story of Jesus. This is the inward movement. But secondly, the second movement is they are sent by Jesus. This is the outward movement. It's mission. Jesus is like, I got work for you to do. You signed up for something here. If you're saying yes to this, you have responsibilities, right? You got obligations. We're not just like members of the country club and we got perks. No, (laughs) we're members of the mission. We got responsibilities, It's a different sort of mentality, right? And what does he give and do? He says to go out to preach and to drive out demons. These are the things that Jesus himself is doing. It's a way of saying, imitate what you see me doing. You go and do the very same things. You're going to represent me. You're going to mediate my presence. You're going to embody and extend it into the places that you go. This is the calling of our lives uh, for followers of Jesus, to embody and to extend the presence of Jesus to proclaim and to demonstrate his work and his will in the world. So that the gospel will be felt and experienced by the people in our lives and the kingdom of darkness will be pushed back and driven out by the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God. Jesus has given this responsibility and this opportunity to his followers. These are the two movements, not just for apostles, but for all of us. Now, it is crucial that followers of Jesus in this day and age that we hold both these things together, both formation and mission, together in union all the time. Because both formation and mission happen in the presence of God. To use a theology term, "coram deo. They happen before the face of God, in God's presence. We are never escaping, like we said this morning in Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? We are always escaping in the presence of God through formation and mission together. So it's not as if we need to disabuse ourselves of this idea. It's not as if we come to church on Sunday morning and we're with Jesus and it's great. And then we leave him here. And so we go out into the world to go and do things for God and to try our best. No, 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 no. We take Jesus with us. Everywhere we go, all the time, Jesus Christ with us, in us, working through us. There's a missionary well known from the 20th century. His name is Le- Leslie Newbegin. He puts it this way this is beautiful. He says, The deepest motive for mission is simply the desire to be with Jesus, where he is, on the frontier between the reign of God and the usurped dominion of the devil. We're frontier people as followers of Jesus. Why? Because that's where Jesus is and we want to be with him, to belong to what he's doing, to share in his work. If you're following your notes, Christ calls us to formation and mission in his presence. Now, just as the apostles became what they were because Jesus called them, you are what you are because Jesus called you. You're reconciled to God because Jesus called you. You're redeemed because Jesus called you. You're healed because he called you. You're restored because he called you. Not because you picked out Jesus yourself and said, ah, that sounds pretty good. I wanna live that life. No, no, Jesus saw you. He is the initiator. It's God's mission first and foremost. We simply respond to it. Neither we nor Jesus' first apostles we're called based on pedigree. Anybody submit a resume to Jesus when you became a Christian? Was there a tryout that I missed? We didn't have to convince him, didn't have to prove anything, didn't have to earn it. He just wanted us. We were called. Jesus emphasizes this to his own followers who are probably not the best and brightest of the bunch. He tells them on the eve of his crucifixion You did not choose me but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. That's John 15. He's like, you weren't looking for this. <laughs> you had no idea what you were signing up for, but I chose you. I've appointed you. I've called you. I want you to go and bear fruit. Yet deep within us, even hearing that, deep within us, we want to earn it. We want to deserve it, to show that we're worth it. We can contribute. Like We've got some reason, right? That Jesus wants us. We've got to be able to like bring something to the table. We want to earn and prove that we belong, that we've got something worth it to demonstrate our worthiness to a watching world. We love to do this when we can. There's an artist, um, you may have heard of him, Michelangelo. And a famous Renaissance Renaissance artist, painter, sculptor did, did a lot of incredible things. In the year 1499, he sculpted a piece called the Pieta. You can see it up there. And the Pieta is a depiction of Jesus' mother, Mary, holding the lifeless body of Jesus after his crucifixion. And I don't know how well you can see the details and get a glimpse of just how good that is, (laughs) but I mean, the stone looks like silk. It's incredible. It's remarkable. When Michelangelo sculpted that in 1499, it was immediately... Known as a masterpiece, something that the likes, have seen, the likes of that had not been seen since antiquity. I mean, it was like the classical era, a return of the great masters. It's the kind of achievement that, that the world's best artists alone could pull off. And even then, it would take a lifetime of practice and trial and error and experimentation and honing one's craft, your hands, your eyes, your mind to be able to do this. Michelangelo did this when he was 24, As you can imagine, hype started to spread, and Michelangelo started to believe it, as we are wont to do. And so one day, Michelangelo is in the chapel at the Basilica, where this was resting, and he overheard a conversation between two men. They're talking about the Pieta, and one of them says to the other, hey, which, which artist sculpted this? I just imagine, I don't know what this would look like, but he's around the corner hiding behind a column and he's just like salivating. Like, oh, this is awesome. They're talking about me. Until he hears the other guy say, oh, I think it was Gabo of Milan. And I don't know what Michelangelo did in that moment, but we know what he did that night. Michelangelo went after hours, snuck into the Basilica by candlelight and brought some instruments etching, sculpting. And that night he carved his own name into the sash on Mary's breast. You can see this here. It says, Michelangelo of Florence made this. Yep. He immediately felt ashamed though at what he had done. This is the only piece of artwork that Michelangelo ever signed. He would never sign another piece. Vanity, it lives in all of us. And vanity is connected to insecurity, our deep need to prove that we matter, to belong and to be part of something, to show, to demonstrate our skill and our ability, that we are worth belonging to the team. But Jesus called us simply because he wants us. No other explanation given in Mark's passage here. He just called the ones he wanted. I don't know about you, but sometimes it's hard for me to believe that Jesus wants me. Like, sure, sure, I get it. God loves us. Does he like me, though? Can he be pleased with me? Does he want to use me? Does he have a purpose and a plan for my life? Do I matter to him? Is there a real delight? in the nature of God and me? If you've ever wondered about that, thought those questions, I want us to just consider the 12 that Jesus appointed on that day, the founding participants of the church. And I won't go through all of them, but let's look at the highlight reel of the people that Jesus himself called. First, there's Peter. Peter, who abandoned Jesus, After swearing that he would go to the death, if nobody else did, I'll be there with you, Jesus. I'm your man. Can you relate to Peter at all? The one who maybe oversells his level of commitment and underperforms, underdelivers. Peter's the guy who went to passion conference, got really fired up on that weekend, then messed it all up the week after. Maybe that's you. But Jesus wanted Peter. There's James and there's John, brothers, sons of thunder. These guys were egotistical. They were bombastic. These are the guys who on one occasion approached Jesus and they said, Jesus, the Samaritan village, they were rude. How about you just, we'll, we'll, we'll do this for you. We'll just call down some fire from heaven. We'll smite these people. Jesus is like, nope, not, we're not doing that. These are the same guys. So you go to Jesus in front of the other disciples on one occasion, mind you. And they say, Jesus, what if we get seats at your right and your left in your kingdom and your glory? How about that? That'd be cool, right? What are you guys. The other disciples are pretty indignant about this. You can imagine. Jesus wanted James and John. Mystery of mysteries. He wanted James and John. There's Matthew, Matthew the tax collector. Matthew's the guy who's hated by his community. The whole country, I mean, they don't like tax collectors. Matthew's the one who seemed to betray his own people, to side with the enemy. How on earth could it be possible that Jesus would wanna use somebody like Matthew to build and to restore the kingdom to Israel? How is this possible? Maybe you feel like Matthew sometimes. All the things you've done, your past? Jesus couldn't use you, could he? He couldn't want you, could he? But Jesus wants Matthew. There's Simon the Zealot. He and Matthew probably didn't get along. See, the Zealots were people who were fanatics for Torah observance. Matthew was not. And so the Zealots, they later developed into a faction of people, a political faction, that violently Uh, started an uprising against Rome. They were even, some of them, assassins. The Zealots were a, a serious group of extremists. I don't know what it would have been like to sit down at the dinner table with Simon the Zealot. I'm sure he had some strong political opinions to share. We know what that's like at Thanksgiving dinner, right? Some of us have this fire in our bones. You're passionate. Sometimes it rubs people the wrong way. You've got just this energy, this drive. Does Jesus wanna use you? Does he want you to belong with him, to learn from him how to do the things he did? Jesus wanted Simon. And then there's Thomas. I think Thomas is my favorite. Affectionately known as Doubting Thomas by church history. Thomas is the one who misses the big reveal about the resurrection. And he can't believe, he won't believe until he puts his fingers in the wound. He says, then I'll know, then I'll come around. Thomas is the patron saint of skeptics, right? And some of us, ourselves, we got questions. We got things we just wanna know the answer to if we're gonna keep following Jesus. Things that feel so burdensome on our souls and our minds that if, if, if we can't know for sure, how are we gonna keep this thing up? Maybe you're like Thomas. You just wanna know. A little bit of certainty would be nice. Jesus wanted Thomas. And he wants you too. I wonder if we could receive this morning that apart from what we can do to demonstrate and prove our worth to God, that God actually, genuinely, passionately loves you. He desires you to be with him and to share in his work. You're called. C.S. Lewis expresses this beautifully. He says to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in. As an artist delights in his work or a father in a son, it seems impossible a weight or burden of glory, which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. So it is. As we'll sing in a moment, we are an altar of broken stones. And yet by God's grace, he's called us to be a part of the living temple, to be a part of his body. And I don't know what other response we could have to that, but hallelujah. There's a a word often used in the Psalms, selah. It means pause. It's, it's where we, we reflect, we digest, we process, we intake, we worship. We let the word sink into our bones. And so as a means of responding as a congregation this morning, our choir is going to sing over us. And I invite you just to sit, to contemplate, to absorb who you are and who God is for you. The God who wants you, loves you, and has called you to belong and to share and his work with him. Thanks for joining us today. If you'd like more information, visit cherryhillsfamily.org or find us on Facebook.